Well, good afternoon, St. Paul's. So today, we're going to start right off the top with our scripture passage. Um, We're still taking a break from Colossians. We're going to come back to it in uh, one more week after this one. I actually won't be able to be with you next week because I am officially graduating from Gordon-Conwell. So... So now your pastor will officially have an MDiv, finally. So, (laughs) but uh, I'll be praying for you guys. I wish wish I could be here. But um, so, uh, Pastor Mark Santastefano is going to be here uh, to fill in, and then the following week we'll be back with part two of Colossians. So, Uh, but this week I wanted to um, do a do a sermon that is very special to me. This is this is actually a sermon, full disclosure, that I've I've given before. but it's, uh, it's one I value a lot because, it's one, it's on one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, Sami. And then, two, it, it's, it has a lot to say about how we view ourselves, which I think is very important. I think the two most important things are how we view the Lord and how we view ourselves. And so this is all about um, how we view us. So the passage that we're looking at is Psalm 8. Um, feel free to follow along in your Bible, or if you just want to close your eyes and reflect as I read this, do that. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? the son of man, that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the, angel, than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. In all the earth. Let's say a quick prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the chance to look at it together this afternoon. And God, I just ask that you would uh, open our our minds and our hearts to receive whatever it is that you want us to hear. Uh, I pray that you would illuminate your scriptures, God, and you'd speak directly to us. And uh, that you would give us the word that we need to hear this afternoon. We give you thanks, and in Jesus' name, amen. So NASA's website says that in about 20 years, we're going to have our first manned trip to Mars, which means that by sometime in the 2030s, human beings should walk on our neighboring planet. Now, the distance between Mars and Earth varies a lot because we're on different orbits, but when those orbits get as close as they ever get together, the distance between the two planets is uh, 33,926,867 miles. So about 34 million miles, give or take 100,000. So, okay, how far is that? Well, for comparison, the Earth is about 25,000 miles around at the equator. So that means that the distance between Earth and Mars, at its shortest, 
is the same distance you would travel if you went around the Earth at the equator 1,357 times. So if you're in a car that's traveling 65 miles an hour, that trip would take you 60 years. So and that's without any food or bathroom breaks. A 60-year car trip. That is a long, long way. But that's just the distance between Earth and our closest planet, right? So what if you decided, well, we're going to keep going. Mars, that's child's play. Let's go to Jupiter. That's the next one out there. So if you wanted to go there, that would be another 342 million miles. And uh, that's more than 10 times the distance between Earth and Mars just to get to the next planet. So if after that 60-year car trip at 65 miles per hour, you decided to just keep going, it would take you another 600 years to get there. But let's say Jupiter isn't that interesting to you. It's just kind of big and gassy and boring. So let's keep going all the way to the edge of the solar system, go all the way to Pluto. Now, this is where the math starts getting tricky. And I tried to figure out all this on myself, like on my own. So, and I'm just a divinity student, you know. So I'm, not a, I'm not a math guy. Um, but, so take this with a grain of salt. But if I figure this out right, the distance between Earth and Pluto is 3,625,276,473 miles. So that number makes our trip to Mars look like a walk in the park. Uh, that's 107 trips to Mars. So that would be a 6,420-year-long car trip, 65 miles per hour, no food or bathroom breaks, which is about 180 lifetimes. Now, of course, the solar system is more than twice that length across, right? Because we're just going from Earth to the edge. So say we wanted to go across the whole solar system, well, then you're talking about 13,166 years, about 164 lifetimes. This is pretty mind-boggling. But so far, we're just talking about our own solar system. It's just one star. And our solar system is actually part of a cluster of 200 to 400 billion stars called the Milky Way Galaxy. So if you want an idea of how big the Milky Way Galaxy is, here's a cool way to think about it. Take your hand... And imagine that there's a grain of sand in the middle of your hand, and that would be the sun. So now, if you're looking at your palm, uh, the distance from one end of your palm to the other is about the size of the solar system, if the sun is the size of a grain of sand. So that's a 13,000-year car trip from one end of your palm to the other. So if that were the case, how big, relative to your hand, do you think the Milky Way galaxy would be? It's the size of North America. Yeah. <laughs> but the Milky Way galaxy is just one of billions of galaxies. You know, there aren't numbers to describe how big these, this space is. We can't even fathom it. Um, this right here is one of the most mind-boggling pictures I've ever seen. Each dot in this is a galaxy. This is taken from the Hubble Space Telescope. So each one of those dots is a cluster of galaxies that's like a North America where something your hand would be a 13,000-year trip across. That is a lot of space. Now, uh, scientists claim that the observable universe is 92 billion light-years across. 
And light is pretty fast. It goes a lot faster than a car going at 65 miles per hour. But even if you could go that fast, uh, which is 186 miles per second, that's the speed of light, even if you could go that fast, it would take 92 billion years to go across the observable universe. It's a lot of space. So how does it make you feel to think about all that space and how small you are in comparison? This is a picture that I've seen floating around on social media. Uh, It says, whenever you get too worked up about politics, religion, money, or life overall, just remember, you are here. And what this picture illustrates is the feeling that many of us have when we consider the enormity of the universe. And that feeling is, well, I guess, I guess I'm not really that significant. I guess uh, my problems aren't really that big of a deal. I mean, I am just relative to the universe. I am an infinitesimal speck that's come to life for an infinitesimal amount of time, born into a universe that doesn't seem to really care if I live or die. The title of today's message is, Who Do You Think You Are? And this is what we've established so far. If you look to the stars to tell you who you are, this is what they say. They say, you are nothing. You, you aren't even a speck. You aren't a speck of a speck. You aren't a speck of a speck within a dot of a dot. You are you're nothing. And they definitely don't tell you a horoscope. Um, horoscopes make you feel significant, right? Horoscopes say things like, uh, you're going to meet the love of your life today, or you're going to face some insurmountable challenge, and you're going to overcome it. Horoscopes make you feel significant, and people say that's written in the stars. But no, people write horoscopes. People tell you that, that you're significant. But the stars, no. The stars say you're nothing. Back in the days when the Bible was written, they weren't able uh, to measure the size of the universe the way we are now. But they were able to look up into the night sky, unencumbered by any pollution or electric lights, and they were able to look deep into that ocean of stars. And they were overwhelmed by what they saw. And in our passage today, the psalmist, David, is doing just that. He's looking up into the stars, and he's overwhelmed. And he says to God, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? the son of man, that you care for him. You know, David figures that if God really did create everything up there, why would he care about us? And we don't care about ants or dust mites, usually. Why would God care about a speck of a speck within a dot of a dot? And not even that. But, David writes, but you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and put everything under his feet. Who do you think you are? The stars say nothing, but God says something very different, something outrageous. God says that we are the kings and queens of creation. He's crowned us with glory and honor. He has made us to rule. Well, really, seriously? That sounds kind of outrageous. 
but actually, I think that this psalm is even more outrageous than we initially realized. And that's for two reasons. The first is this phrase, we've been made a little lower than the heavenly beings. Some translations say angels. We've been made a little lower than the angels. Now, you might be wondering, okay, who or what are these heavenly beings that David is referring to? Well, the word that's getting translated here as heavenly beings in the Hebrew is this word Elohim. Uh, Elohim, um, Hebrew runs opposite from the way we normally read, uh, from right to left. So that says Elohim. Take my word for it. Um, And Elohim is one of the most words that appears the most in the Old Testament. It it appears a lot. And 90% of the times that it appears, does anyone know what it means? God. That's right. Exactly. So the vast majority of the time, this word means God. And when I was in seminary, I wrote a paper on this psalm, and I tried to argue, and maybe some of you who know Hebrew might want to contest this later, I don't know, but I tried to argue that really a literal, straightforward uh, translation of this, of this uh, line in the psalm is, you've made him a little lower than God. You know, basically, that sounds a little irreverent, that sounds outrageous, but I think, I think that's what David is writing here. Um, because for two reasons... If a word 90% of the time is translated as God everywhere else in the Bible, you've got to have a pretty good reason for not translating it as God in this case. And I don't really see a good reason not to. And secondly, uh, this psalm, the whole point is that God has made us to rule, right? And who is the ultimate ruler? The ultimate ruler is God. So that's one reason this psalm uh, is a little bit more outrageous than we might initially think. Uh, and, and the second reason is because, see here, um, because of this phrase where he says um, that God has put the work of his hands under our feet. And we kind of lose a little of the cultural context when we hear that. Uh, but what he's saying is the work of his holy hands has been put under our feet. And in the ancient world, it was customary for a conquering king to hold his feet over the neck of whoever he has just conquered, you know, who's lying before him. And so just the outrageousness of saying that God has taken his, his, the work of his hands, his holy hands, and, and that if you're thinking of that picture, we are the ones who are standing there with our foot on his creation, that God has put us in that position. Now, that is amazing. It's remarkable. Now, this might seem a little arrogant to say all this, um, but here's something else to consider. You might be wondering, okay, where is David getting this idea that we're the kings and queens of creation? Not from the stars. Ultimately, David's getting this idea from God. But, more specifically, he's getting it from what is revealed in the book of Genesis. Right? If we look at Genesis... It's very similar to Psalm 8. And what Psalm 8 is, is David's reflection on the Genesis story. If we go back to the first book of the Bible, right in the beginning, God says, Let us make man in our image, in our, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Sounds a lot like Psalm 8, right? So, Psalm 8, David's reflection on this ancient account of creation. 
And in both scriptures, we see the same idea. Human beings are made to rule. We're the kings and queens of creation. And, you know, I think the truth is that if we just, we just have an unbiased attitude, let's just observe the way the world works. The reality that we are the kings and queens of creation is clear. Uh, because we are different from any other creature on earth. Because as human beings, we have this unique capacity to rule over our surroundings. And more specifically, we have this unique ability to take what God has already created and turn it into something else or something more. Um, I guess one way of putting it is that God has created the world with possibilities, and then he's made us to actualize those possibilities and then turn them into reality. So God makes an egg, but human beings make an omelet. Right? And when God made that egg, he endowed it with all the, the potentiality to become an omelet. I don't think we surprised him when we made one. right? But he created us to be the ones that actualize that potential. Just like God creates trees, and he, but then he, we're the ones that take those trees and turn them into paper or turn them into a log cabin or something like that. God creates coffee beans, and I praise him for that. Um, but... We are, we are the ones who then brew those beans and, and turn them into coffee. And God has created the world so that it is just brimming with possibilities. It's filled with them. And he could have just turned all those possibilities into realities himself. He could do that. But instead, God has gifted us, us tiny human beings, with the ability to uncover those possibilities and turn them into realities. So it's a little bit like a parent providing a child with a box of Legos or a stack of construction paper and crayons and saying, go for it. God has given us the resources and the power to create. And you look around the world and you see this, right? Skyscrapers, music, computers, um, plumbing, farming, medicine. These things are all evidence that we as human beings have this unique ability to rule. And paradoxically, I think this is interesting, our ability to rule makes us realize how ridiculous it is that we rule. Because our ability to rule gives us things like math and science, which leads us to study the universe and be like, what? Look at this. This is crazy. How is it that we have this capacity to rule in this immense universe that, where we are just a speck of a speck in a dot of a dot? Now, some people look at these verses in Genesis and Psalm 8, and they take them to mean that as kings and queens, we have the right to do whatever we want to creation, because we have the authority, right? So, if we want to dump toxic waste in rivers, if we want to, like, cut down trees willy-nilly, if we want to kill an animal just for fun, well, we can do that, because we're the kings and queens. We have the authority. We have the power. But the problem with that view is it confuses the granting of authority with approval. Um, Here in the United States, we elect a president. We elect to give the president authority. But I don't know any president that's had a 100% approval rating, even from the people that elected him. Uh, They're not the same thing. And what we need to recognize is not that God approves of whatever we do with our authority. He doesn't but that as kings and queens, we have great power to both bless and curse God's creation. 
Kings and queens aren't by definition good or bad, right? They could be good, they could be bad. But what kings and queens are is powerful. They have authority. They have this power to be an incredible blessing to a kingdom or power to be a terrible curse. And the same is true for us as the kings and queens of creation. We have the power to completely disrupt the world's ecosystem. We, we can and have killed off entire species. We produce weapons that could kill most of the life on the planet if we use them. Uh, no other species on Earth has that kind of power. To be a king or a queen is an honor, but at the same time, it is a huge responsibility. And what we need to acknowledge is that it's a responsibility that none of us have handled perfectly. Not one. Uh, We may be kings and queens, but to put it poetically in the spirit of David, we have dirty, dented crowns. Our rule is powerful, but it is also broken and limited. So, so far I've tried to answer this question, who do you think you are, with two paradoxical truths. One, we are unbelievably small and fragile compared to God and everything he's made. Uh, And two, God's made us to be kings and queens. But in order to have an accurate view of who we are, we need to add a third truth, which is that our ruling powers have been compromised, they've been broken, and they've been limited by sin. I said that Psalm 8 is a reflection on Genesis 1. Well, when we we go to Genesis 1, we have to remember what comes just a little while after, right? Genesis 3. It's the fall of humanity. And... um, Many of you have probably heard the story many times, but we're going to take a quick look at it. Um, This is from Genesis 3. The serpent said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So as we know, Eve does eat the fruit. So does Adam. And after that, things are never quite the same. Adam and Eve, they're still kings and queens over creation. That doesn't change, but their rule is not at peace anymore with creation. There's this tension now between their rule and the creation. And God describes that a little while later. He says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So, what did Adam and Eve do that was so wrong? You know, they, they ate a piece of fruit, and then that happens. It kind of it can seem like overkill. The problem was that instead of allowing God to have his rightful place as the supreme king, they decided that they wanted to be the supreme king. Instead of accepting position as second in command, they wanted to be first in command. And here's the irony. When they sought to have God's authority, they lost authority. And I think that's really important for us to hear. When they sought to have God's authority, 
they lost authority. But before Adam and Eve disobeyed God, work wasn't painful toil for them. Uh, Childbirth wasn't very painful. I'm not sure how that works, but it's what the text says. Uh, They didn't need to fear death. They had this relationship with creation where they were very much in charge. Things went smoothly. They were the kings and queens. But after they disobeyed God, it just wasn't like that anymore. And I think we see that same principle in our lives today. When we allow God to be the supreme king of our lives, we actually gain control in our lives. But if we try to just be the one who's the supreme one in charge, we lose control. Because as soon as we let sin in, sin, sin always brings disorder and chaos, and that leads us to lose control. We become enslaved to addictions, all kinds of things that make us lose our ability to exercise our will in a free way. So, we submit to God, our power and authority increases. But when we seek our own power, we lose it. So if you're taking notes, this is the point where I'm going to recap. Maybe you already got all this. But So who do, we, who do you think you are? Here's the recap. You are a speck of a speck within a dot of a dot. But, even so, God has graciously made you a king or queen over creation. But, also, one more qualifier. As a fallen human being who struggles with sin, your power and authority are limited. So this is the, this is the biblical view of who we are. So if this is the truth about who we are, what does that mean for our lives here and now? And there are three things that I'd like us to recognize about if this is the truth, and I believe it is, what that means for us today. The first one that we need to recognize is this. We need to recognize our immense value in God's eyes. Our immense value in God's eyes. If you are here this afternoon and you are feeling worthless or insignificant, you need to know that God's original intended purpose for you is to serve as a king or queen in creation. You are not worthless. You're not insignificant. You do have power because God values you. You David wrote in the psalm, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? And if, like David, you find that hard to believe, when you look at the enormity of the universe, you have to realize David's asking rhetorical questions. He's implying that, well, yes, God does. He is mindful. He does care. David's saying, I don't understand it, but it's true. Um, That that word that gets translated as care in the Hebrew, it's an interesting word. It actually means to visit or to attend to. So it has this very warm connotation. So despite how it might seem when you consider the vastness of the universe, God has you on his mind. God pays you a visit. He attends to you. And not only that, but he has crowned you with glory and honor. So don't sell yourself short. God has appointed you to represent him to the rest of creation. Hold your head high because the supreme king of the universe has called you to be a king. So the second thing we need to recognize is our need to rule in some way. Our need to rule. Now, don't get the wrong idea here. 
I'm not saying that you're not going to be fulfilled in your life until you're bossing around some other person or an animal. Um, What I'm saying is that God has called all of us to bring some of those good possibilities that he's created into reality. And what we talked about last week a little bit was this idea that he's uniquely gifted each one of us in ways where we, we have this, this special capacity to do that in ways that other people might not be. Um, all of us have been crafted in such a way that we have the capacity to bring some specific possibilities that God has created into reality. And the good news is that there is like virtually an infinite number of ways that we can manifest our rule and that we can do that. You know, exercising our rule might look like designing and building a house or writing a movie script or uh, teaching a third-grade classroom. <clears throat> There's just a, an, a, an unbelievable number of ways that we can, we can do that. And we as Christians often talk about this idea of finding our calling, right? And what finding our calling is, really, is discovering the unique way that God has made us to rule. So how do you know what God's calling on your life is? Well, this is not coming from the text right now. But I'm going to just offer two questions that I would encourage you to reflect on if you're searching for your calling. So if you want to write these down, I'll say them slowly. But they're helpful for me. The first one is, where am I good at bringing order out of disorder? Where am I good at bringing order out of disorder? And the second one is... In what ways am I drawn to turning possibilities into reality? In what ways am I drawn to turning possibilities into reality? Because chances are, if when you reflect and pray over those questions, you get clear answers, that is probably your calling. And once you discover your calling, I don't care if you're 20 or 90, just go for it. Just do it. Because when you live into what God has made you to do, that is when you're going to be fully alive. And it's when you're going to be fulfilling God's mandate to rule. And then finally, the last thing that we need to recognize is our need to submit our authority to God. So our authority is ultimately a gift. Uh, It doesn't come from the stars. It doesn't come from nature. It definitely doesn't come from ourselves. It is a gift from God. So if we want to keep our authority and use it well, we have to submit ourselves to God's authority. An authority that isn't submitted to God is dangerous, like we talked about earlier, all the ways that our authority can be abused. It ends up causing more disorder than order, and more cursing than blessing. You know, the best leaders that you know are the ones that know how to take advice. And so, if we want to be good leaders, if we want to be good stewards of the authority that God has given us, we need to seek advice from the one who gave it to us in the first place. Because he knows what's up. He knows how we're supposed to use it. But, more specifically, we need to submit ourselves to Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that there is only one human being in the whole history of the world that actually exercised his rule perfectly. All the rest of us have messed up 
with exercising our rule. Maybe we exercised our rule in a domineering way and dominated in ways that we weren't supposed to. Or maybe we were lazy and we like abdicated our throne and we just don't want to do anything. Right? There's, you, can, you can mess up your rule by being active or passive. Both ways you can mess it up. But Jesus didn't mess it up in either of those ways. Jesus was and is the perfect ruler. God gave him authority, but he didn't use that authority to serve himself. He used his authority to serve others and to obey God. He used his authority to bless, not to curse, to give, not to take, to heal, not to hurt. And Jesus' rule was so perfect that even death couldn't rule him. And that hasn't been true of any human being since the fall. But it was true of Jesus. And now, as the Apostle Paul says in Corinthians, he says, death and everything else under everything else in creation is under Jesus' feet. So if we want to rule and rule well, we need to submit our rule to the perfect ruler and look to his example. Because he's the one who hung all those stars in the first place. So let's pray. Lord, when we consider your heavens, like David did, we are in awe. It it truly is mind-boggling to think of the vastness of what you've created. And to to think that you know every every part of it, God. Every, Every planet out there in the vastness of space, you know everything that's going on there. Every rock that falls over when some cosmic wind blows, you know about it, God. And um, we're just in awe of that. So we're humbled, God. But at the same time, we thank you that in our, in our humble state, at the same time, you, you have exalted us, God. You have uh, given us uh, abilities and capacities to bless and to curse. And uh, we're in awe of that as well, Lord. So, God, I ask that you would help each one of us to be a good steward of that power that you've given us. We pray that we would surrender that power to you, Lord. And we pray that you would help us to see the ways that we can bring um, good possibilities into reality in the world. And we thank you for the example of your son, who exercised his rule perfectly. And we ask that you'd help each one of us to be more like him. In Jesus' name, amen.